Holy Spirit in us to guide us. We pray too for the rest of our brothers and sisters in our church family. Um, just there are different needs that we know they have, Lord. Um, some we can just pray and say we want to encourage them just to know, especially right now, that they are not alone. Even when they are lonely, they're not alone. You are here. You are with us. And so, Lord, encourage us this week. We know that one of the primary tasks you've given us, Father, is to tell others this good news about Jesus and that you want, it, you want all nations. And you said, go make disciples from all nations. So you have equipped and called some of us to specific roles. And we think about our own missionaries from BGC Canada, uh, Connie Duarte, um, Laura Russell, um, the other ones, Lord, uh, Scott and Nancy Campbell, Mike and Eva Fast. Uh, thank you, and you're taking care of them, Lord, as they are marooned in, in Saskatoon right now. They can't go back to the Philippines yet because travel's not allowed. But we know that they are still doing ministry from, from Canada there. Randy and Margot Hoffman, Lord, in their Muslim outreach ministries in greater Vancouver. And then Dan and Evangeline, Dan and Vange Bertels in tra Bible translation in southern Mexico. And others that came from this church that are out serving you. Rick and Tracy Rempel, training mission aviation pilots in Calgary. Various different ways, Lord. We, we pray to encourage them this week that they would sense that you're, you're pleased with their efforts for you. Lord, and we could continue. We go from our Jerusalem to our Judea to our Samaria. So we pray for Canada. Lord, we need you. Oh, do we need you right now. We need you because we need a moral compass. We need a, a clear moral compass. And we understand and know and love your word and know that's the truth. And that's where we want to find out where, what to do, where to go, how to, how to act, how to behave. So Lord, I pray in the churches in Canada that our pastors would, would uh, be stirred to preach the truth. Preach your word. And around the world, Lord, many countries where we have people who can't worship freely. Lord, we pray that you would grow them strong as a church, that even in those dire situations, those hard situations, they would be encouraged to know that you, Lord Jesus, are with them and in them. Yeah. And so, Lord, there are many others that have never heard your word, that unreached group. We also pray for them, that you would send more people. Jesus said, Look at the fields. They're white for harvest. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers out into his field. And so we do that. So Lord, wherever that is happening, Lord, we pray and ask that uh, you would be stirring their hearts to, to serve and follow you. And many other things we could pray for today, Lord, but we will stop there. But thank you, Lord. You hear our prayers. In your name, Jesus, we give you thanks. Amen. In the very early days of Jesus' ministry, um, he gathered a really diverse group of people. 
He did. Uh, he invited, <laughs> really, he, he invited some real characters to come and follow him. He had people like a tax collector. Oh, yeah, people loved them. Uh, some fishermen. Uh, some people who were interested but really doubted. You know, we know one of them by name, Thomas. Uh, a dodgy guy that he put in charge of the money, Judas Iscariot. He called people from all walks of life and, from, and, and with all different personalities and strengths. One of the most colorful of them was Simon, son of John better known as today as Peter. Now, one day, after he'd been with him for a while and seen miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida, that's from Mark 8, he asked the group, he said, who do people say that I am? And his disciples answered and said, some say you were John the Baptist returned from the dead. Others say Elijah or one of the prophets. And Jesus answered and said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, bless his heart, is the one who opened up. And he said, Peter answered and said, this is not in that translation you're reading, Thou art the Logos, existing in the Father as his rationality, and then, by an act of his will, being generated in consideration of the various functions by which God is related to his creation, but only on the fact that Scripture speaks of a Father, a Son, and a Holy Spirit, each member of the Trinity being co-equal with every other member and each acting inseparably with and interpenetrating every other member with only an economic subordination within God, but causing no division which would make the substance no longer simple. And Jesus said, what? <laughs> what? Now, I'm having a little fun with theologians here, the expense of scholars. Technically, everything Peter said was true. That was true, but it was put in, 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 in theological, scholarly language. The problem is that unless you're a scholar and you're familiar with those technical terms, you probably had the same reaction. What? I'm so thankful that Paul didn't do that to us. That though he'd studied at one of the most prestigious schools in Jerusalem, the school he studied under Gamaliel in his school. He was an, a, an educated man. But he didn't use a lot of technical babble. Uh, today, we're going to begin the letter to the Ephesians in earnest today. Paul did not set out, he didn't set out to write weighty, right down to the last little detail theological tomes. He wrote letters. He wrote letters. And for many of his letters, he used a standard formula that was common in the first century. Uh, you'd introduce yourself. You'd bring a greeting. You'd tell people why you were writing. And, yeah, and you'd tell people why you were writing. And, and then you'd flesh out what you wanted to say and apply it. And then you'd say goodbye. That was pretty standard fare. At times, Paul did speak of quite weighty things. But he always used language that his readers would understand. As feelings for people spilled into that writing. And, and he most likely was writing this letter to them from house arrest in Rome. He's thinking about his own future. And he even goes at the end of this chapter that we're starting today, he even starts to venture in. He's thinking about his own death. Talks a lot about it. The purpose that Paul had in mind to write this letter, the main purpose, 
was to thank them for the support they were giving him. Uh, supporting Support for the gospel, making sure that it was being spread in Philippi, making sure that he was getting personal support too. They'd sent a care package to him through a man named Epaphroditus. But he also has another reason that Paul always has for writing. He wants to inspire them. He wants to, them to continue to grow in their health as a church. And the biggest theme in this book, to that end, is to experience joy in everything. Unshakable joy. We're going to see that expressed today in, in two ways. The way Paul thinks about them and the way Paul prays for them. So let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. We'll read the, uh, the, the whole section of Scripture we're studying all in one piece today. Philippians 1, starting right at the beginning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. I just want to stop and go, mm. <laughs> let that soak in. And he carries on. It's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart and whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, through the glory and praise of God. I wish I could put that much content into that little, that, that short amount of sentences, you know. Profound. It's wonderful. I love it. I love it. But do you hear Paul's obvious affection for these people as you read it? He, he's, it's, it's expressed there. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. You think, wow, he really loves these guys, these people. And every prayer he prays for them seems to bring him joy. And verse 7, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I have you in my heart. And in verse 8, God can testify how, long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Wow, that's the way he longs for them and for us. Clearly he loves them and he longs for them. But how can he be so joyful? He's, in a, he, he's at house arrest. He knows this is possibly only going to end one way. He might get out, we don't know. And, he's, and he knows he's thinking already about his death. Why is he so joyful, given the conditions that he's writing? Why? 
First, I think it's because this. He rejoices that whether, whether they're together in person or separated by a great distance, they and we all share in God's grace. And that comes directly out of verse 7. He says, It's right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart for whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. Uh, some of the Bible translations say, you are all partakers with me of grace. And, so, and since the first day that these people had trusted the Lord, that God in his grace had saved them, he says, they became brothers and sisters, partners in the gospel. Even in the hard times, like the one that he was experiencing in prison as he was writing. Even when separated by great distances or provincial health regulations. Do you realize as Christians that we share the most central and vital part of who we are? Jesus. That's the key to understanding why Paul loved them so much. They had had a long journey together. Paul had got the church started and he launched it. And then he went away. He would get back there eventually. But in the meanwhile, he writes. They're separated physically right now. But he wants to encourage them. Now, have you ever noticed, and you're like, what, this, I can think of a wonderful picture of this. When my, my uh, son and, and uh, our youth group at our, one of our churches decided to go on a hike up, uh, up Chilliwack Lakeway. And they hiked up to a mountaintop uh, at a place called Radium Lake. They had so much fun that they decided to do it again the next year in April. Well, they had full packs with lots of cans. <laughs> you shouldn't pack cans if you're trying to hike up a, a, a high mountain. And when they got halfway up, they discovered that there was a snowpack. And they kept going, and they t pitched their tents overnight, and they slept. They, they didn't sleep. They tossed and turned. It was so uncomfortable. They froze to death. They, they were exhausted when they got home. But for the next three years, all we heard about was, oh, man, do you remember that? Do you remember how that was? That bonded them. Now, if a negative thing like that can bond people together, positive ones do too. Positive ones do too. Shared experiences. And shared experiences often lead to a shared affection for each other especially if you go through something big together, something hard together. Whether, it doesn't matter whether they're good or bad or pleasant or, or a real hardship. They bond us. There's no greater or more life-changing shared experience than being adopted into the family of God. There's no greater shared experience than having your sin completely wiped away and the righteousness of Christ given to you. Nothing's more significant in our lives than that. Being a new creation, being reconciled to God. No bigger shared experience than that. And we probably all agree with that. Then the question becomes, why don't we get along sometimes? Well, the problem, I think, is that we don't think about it much 
especially after we've been together for a long time. We can forget that there's a strong family bond that we have in Jesus, and we can start focusing more on other things, issues, temporal things, less on the things of God. Or we start hanging around with people that are like us in, in ways that are more like the, the culture around us than, than godly ways. And, and it might be easy when we start doing that to think we have more in common with them or people in the same phase of life as us. The old uh, writers and, and some of the older Bible translations don't think of the word affection as a, a word to do with, with love the way we do. Uh, they think affection less as a romantic term and more as the focus of our attention. What, is, what are your affections? Meaning, what's the focus of your attention? Facebook, other social media platforms use algorithms to determine what kind of posts you see in your newsfeed. They're based on posts of things that you like or comment on. And over time, you've probably discovered that your newsfeed starts to just basically tell you everything you already like, and you'll see more and more of what you want to see or already like. I was looking online the other day, actually, well, it was a while ago, for a gift for Sue, and, and I focused on a particular item. And not two hours later, I started seeing ads for it showing up in my media, social media from the store that I had looked on. So, well, they do that because that's how they compete and that's how they make money. I know, how they stay relevant. But over time, you can, really get, you can easily become surrounded by people that are just like you, that think just like you. According, there's uh, a research organization, uh, it's American-based, called Pew Research. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan, supposedly, a think tank. According to them, half of all people interviewed said that it was important to them to live in a neighborhood or a community where most people shared the same political views. That's incredible. Half. Um, but it's an example. We want to be around people with the same interests as us. We want to be around people that we agree with most of the time, even though we disagree some of the time. And some of that might be natural, and a lot of it is cultural. But that's why the church of Jesus is so countercultural, Because the body of Christ, the church, is made up of people from all backgrounds, from all cultures, from all socioeconomic statuses, all political views. What brings us together? What brings us the joy to be together is Jesus. We share in God's grace, in him. We have the greatest shared experience there is. God saved us from our sin, and he brought us together as a community. So that's the first. Uh, the second thing that fuels Paul's joy, really stokes it, this, this affection for them, is he's confident in God that God is going to continue the work of sanctification in them. That's a long word, but it basically means becoming more and more like Christ, more and more holy. Getting rid of the stuff that shouldn't be there and making sure that we're doing the stuff that should be. He knows that they're growing. Philippians is one of those letters that doesn't have any big issues in the church. And as we go through, the, through it in the next few weeks, you'll see that. He's got one later on. It's, a, it's more of a of a personal conflict between a couple of people, but there's no great huge things going wrong here. He knows they're growing in Christ. He knows who is growing them. 
in a very real sense, we get to see Jesus becoming more and more evident in each other. That's one of the joys about being together in a congregation. Uh, one of my favorite verses in this whole passage here is verse 6. And it's one of those ones we talked about maybe on, on our mirrors, our, our, in our bathrooms and things. I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And Paul's heart was with these people because he saw that they shared in God's grace with him. And not only just for salvation, but also in the Christ-like growth. He saw evidence that Christ was at work in them. Loved them because he saw God working in them. They were a testimony to God's work and to God's character. The one who began a good work in us as Christians is the same one who will carry it to completion. What a great relief that is to know it's not my burden to carry. <laughs> not all on my shoulders. What a great encouragement that is to hear that God will carry on his work. God will carry on his work, not only just in us as individuals, but in us as a community. So bullet points that can summarize this. These aren't right out of Philippians, but they, they relate to this. God, God did the work to save us. That's what he's saying. He who began the good work in you, I didn't begin the good work in me. God did. God did the work to save us. God, according to Ephesians 1, 4, said God chose us before the creation of the world, the foundation of the world. And having chosen us, God drew us to himself. Jesus in John 6 said, if the Father doesn't draw them, no one comes to him. No one comes to me except that the Father draw them. God also does this work of sanctification. This, he refines us. He purifies us. And he begins conforming us to the likeness of his Son. Ah, I love it. You know, despite our inadequacies and despite our failures, God never gives up on us. Yes, thank you, Lord. That brings me great joy when I see it. Not, not just in me, but in the other followers of Jesus. Because that's a testimony to the character of God. He's a God that does not go back on his promises. He's, he's a God that can't and won't be stopped by anything in bringing to completion that work that he began in us. He does not give up. He is relentless. That is God's heart for us. It's the confidence that Paul has for the Philippians too. As I may have mentioned earlier, this, this as I wrote this, sorry, as I wrote this, I was thinking about this and, and the first verse of a 19th century hymn written by a Scottish pastor popped into my mind. O oh, love that will not let me go. I rest. My, I, I, God's tenacious. He will not let us go. I rest my weary soul in thee. Did Jesus not say, come to me, you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. I give thee back the life I owe. 
That's a natural response to gratitude for being given something that we did not deserve. Grace, salvation by grace through faith. That in thine ocean depths, the deep, the depths of, of the riches of God, its flow may richer, fuller be. As I give back my walk, my conduct, gets, my walk gets fuller and it gets richer. He does not let his people go. So not only is our growth in Christ a testimony to God's faithfulness, so is the growth and the, the sanctification of everybody around us, our Christians. Yeah, we should encourage each other when we see Christ in each other. But ultimately, we should thank God like Paul does because he's the one doing the work in us. Well, think about it. If you think about it that way, and, and as people kind of watching and seeing the work that's begun and how we're changing and growing and, and developing uh, as we follow him more carefully, it's like we're all little preachers running around out there because what people are, we're, we're not maybe using the words, but people see what God has done. We're testifying to God's faithfulness by the way we live. And despite my inadequacies, I'm confident that God will finish the work in me and I know, I know that's true, and I know I see it in the people around me too. So if God doesn't give up on his kids, well, I guess the application for that would be neither should we. Uh, if you're ever, have you ever been frustrated at Christians that don't seem to be acting completely like Christians? <laughs> yeah, you don't have to put a hand up. I, I know, I know, we all do that. That does happen at times. But do we also see and make and see it as a joy that God is at work in them? Because if you've known someone at the start and you've known someone a few years later, you can look and see how God has been transforming them. They may still have quirks and problems here, but they're not where they were at the start. So God took the initiative to save them. God's going to complete his work. And, and we know he's going to do it. And he might even use us to help. We might have an opportunity to, to speak into people's lives or, or, uh, or help them share an insight of scripture or something like that that we've learned in our walk. We're going to see that actually at work uh, a little bit later in the book too because uh, chapter 4, Paul, Paul has to prod and nudge a couple of people who need to get along a little bit better. He needs to do that correcting. So, um, excuse me. Have you ever heard people say something like, I love Jesus, but I just don't love the church. Just don't like the church. Yeah, unfortunately that, that does happen. But when someone thinks that way, the problem isn't with the church. The problem is with their heart. When we say we don't like the church, we're actually exposing our own hearts because it's like we don't see that God's at work in everybody. Maybe, well, maybe not everyone, maybe not all at the same pace, but God is moving and he will complete what he begins. 
And it's a beautiful thing to see that in the body of Christ as people grow. We all have our strengths and weaknesses. We're all in different places in our, in our, in our walk with Christ. We're in different parts of the journey toward becoming like Christ. What? But you put us all together in one place when we can, Lord willing. We get to see more and more of who Jesus is by looking at how he's collectively changing us and looking at the collective holiness of a church. You get to see a far better picture of the heart and holiness of Christ together than you ever do if you're separate. And, and Paul felt that. He had the pain of separation. Because he not only he's not 10, 10K down the road and, and he can have guests. He's in Rome probably. And there, south end of Greece, southeast side of Greece. Um, that was intensified by his imprisonment. And, and I love what he says here in verse 8. He says, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus, it, the literal translation, if you had the, the original words, is in the en- with the entrails of Christ. <laughs> yeah. Um, people thought that uh, the seat of the emotions was the, uh, the coelia is the word, the, your, your gut. They thought it was down here. Have you ever been lovesick? So in love that you couldn't eat? <laughs> Paul has a longing for them. He's heartsick. He longs for them with the affection of Christ. He can't see them right now. And so what he does, the next best thing, if if you're Paul, which is to pour out his feelings for them in his prayer. And so his prayer for them is that their love for one another would continue to grow. That's That's the basic idea of his prayer. That their love for one another would continue to grow. That's his primary prayer. So he's talking about this. He's talking about the love he has for them because they share in God's grace and that he's confident God's going to finish the work. And here's what he prays. And this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He wants them to grow. He wants them to grow and to continue walking closer and closer to Jesus. And that theme goes through the whole letter. That your love may abound. That's what he wants to see grow. In two ways. In knowledge and in depth of insight. Knowledge in the original language is literally knowing God. Uh, God has made himself known to us through Jesus and in Jesus. And they've received him by faith. And now... What they need to do is build on that relationship. So having better knowledge, a more fuller knowledge of God and his ways will grow them together in that love. Depth of insight is a little different. It's it's a, a Greek word here that is actually only used one time in the entire New Testament. Only one time in the whole Bible. And if you were a Bible theologian, I'd tell you that's a hapax legomena and you'd know what I meant. But one time. But it means having insights into God that equip us to make good moral decisions. That doesn't contradict. None of this work has 
contradicts verse 6, which says that God gets all the credit for the work. Because the same grace that saves us and empowers us and energizes us toward holy holiness is at work in both. The same love that set the captives free. <laughs> yeah. Wow. There's a theologian. I, I, I met him once named Don Carson. Uh, uh, D.A. Carson. Describes this, what Paul's talking about here as grace-driven, ex- grace-driven effort. Grace-driven. Uh, we've been given a new life in Christ, according to Romans 8. We're new creations. And now we strive, he says, by God's grace and in the ability he gives us to live the new life that we've been given. So what does it actually look like? What does that growth look like? First and foremost, it's love. It's not knowledge. It's love. Love is probably the greatest mark of the Christian all throughout the New Testament. So as we grow in Christ and in genuine love for God, our love for others also increases, becomes just part of who we are because we begin to see the Father's heart and how he loves us and why he wants us to come to him and be, be in relationship. So as we grow in Christ, that increases. And it's not something that we actually generate ourselves. It's actually what Paul says. It's the love of Christ. It's his love in us. Verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So as Jesus lives in me, his love is going to be shown through me. And his love for God will become my love for God. And his love for people, especially God's children, will become my love for people. How does it increase? (laughs) Knowledge and depth of insight. They help us because they help us to be pure and blameless. They help us to be filled with the fruit of that righteousness that comes through Jesus. Knowledge is necessary to grow spiritually. Sometimes we hear things like, well, you you can get it out of balance. You'll hear things like, just express your love more and more because when you don't express your love enough, your growth will be slowed. Actually, that sounds pretty good, but not according to what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying the reason our growth slows and even the reason our love for God and for each other is inhibited is that we are not growing closer and closer to God. That we don't know God well enough. I mean, how can we love a God that we don't know? We can't. So knowledge of who God is and what he has done, the theological knowledge that's found in, in God's word, the Bible, of what he's given to us, that's what moves us toward maturity. So another way that our pastors say it is you need, we need to be students of the word. Yep, all of us. Knowledge and love, sorry, knowledge and depth of insight are linked. But what it's really saying is we need to know the truth, but we also need to apply the truth. 
I guess if you're looking at it, it's know the truth and apply the truth. Yeah. And doing that, we say basically, what does the Bible teach? And then, how does this truth affect and apply to my daily life? But it isn't ever knowledge for its own sake. The more we grow in knowledge and depth of insight, the more we grow in our love, and the more we progress toward that purity and blamelessness. So it's, it's a system. The purity is the internal part. The blamelessness is the external part. And as that progression takes place, the fruit of righteousness, the evidence of the righteousness from Jesus comes through. It's a process, right? It's a process. And I think that's why Paul says my prayer is more and more. It gives us a clear, clear, picture, clear picture of a long-term process of growth. Real spiritual growth is a slow cooker. <laughs> it's not an instant pot or a microwave. And, and that's part of our struggle. We, we are so... We are so impatient. We want maturity and we want it now. But we're also impatient with each other. We get frustrated because someone doesn't appear to us to have grown or isn't growing up. We can't see their hearts. Growing and maturing is a slow process it's a lifelong process um, we do have to be patient and we have to persevere in it and by God's grace and in his power he will he will carry it on to completion he will so here's one question out of this that I think we can take away today and this is all application here do we love the body of Christ the church? Do we have affection for the people that God has put us together with because of what we share? Jesus himself. Or do we tend to let our differences overshadow what we share and get separated on other things? Can we have an affection for them based on the gospel? Because we have more in common in that and with them than anyone else on the face of the planet because we have Jesus. Paul knew that. And so he could pray joyfully that their love would abound for each other and for Jesus. So my prayer is that we'd find that joy that we all share in God's grace together, coming together around the one truth and the one message, which is the life, the death, burial, the resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and life in him. He's more than a mere shared experience, though. He is our life. He is our joy. He was Paul's joy. I saw that, Paul saw that joy in them as well. That's why he prayed that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this start to uh, Paul's letter. Uh, it's hard to imagine him getting even more excited than this, but we know that's where he's headed. There's so many good things that we will learn in the next few weeks. But Lord, we start here, and we start with a basic thing. We pray that our love for you, that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight 
in you so that we might be able to know, discern what's best and that it would allow us and guide us to be pure and blameless so that when the day of your return comes, Jesus, we will stand unafraid and eager and excited to see you because we want to be filled with that fruit of righteousness that comes only through Jesus. And we want it not for our own sake, but to the glory and praise of you, our Lord. So thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.